Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the host, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, January 24th, 2021. 2021? 21? Lucky 21? Maybe? Don't people say that? Yeah, this year does not feel lucky so far, so let's (laughs) wait until February for that. We'll wait. But it's the first Sunday of the Biden administration officially, officially. Yeah, and we said we weren't going to say the name of the previous president. That was a lie. You said that, and I knew that was a lie. We'll see if if we succeed at that. I'm telling you right now. Yeah, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Why don't you talk about what show you covered today? Sure, yeah. So I looked at... Face the Nation, and This Week. And I looked at Fox News Sunday, Meet the Press, and State of the Union. I got the the short straw this week. The I guess heavier load. Week. Who, any sub-hosts? Uh, well, not officially, because officially now, Dana Bash. Wait, that doesn't make not officially because officially? Yes, okay, correct. You... Not, we do not officially have a co, like a, a sub because Dana Bash has been named an official right. co-host of State of the Union. So we're going to see so a lot more of her. Now, if you go to the website for State of the Union on CNN, and you can't just search Google for State of the Union because you will come up with all the speeches that <laughs> these really presidents annoying. have given. Always write CNN when you yes. Google State of the Union. You will go to the website eventually. You will find your way there, and you will see that the new logo says what it always did, State of the Union, in the same way as it always did. But underneath it, it says, with Jake Tapper and Dana Bash. And she has earned it. She, she has done really has. An, an incredible job. Good point. Amazing growth. from. If you go back to the early episodes of Polylog, we, we were, were not fans. Not impressed with Dana Bash. And then she just got better and better and better. And we weren't the only ones who noticed. And now she is an official co-host, and she deserves it. One of the best interviewers, best hosts out there on the Sunday shows. So it's awesome. And now officially we have two women who are co-hosts. Who are co-hosts. Well or hosts in in the in the seat. What is Mar- Martha Raditz? No, she's not official. That show is literally titled This Week with George Stephanopoulos. The yeah, title so. <laughs> of the show is not This Week. It is This Week with George Stephanopoulos. But she has some special title. Anyway, it's good to see more women holding the host chair. But let's get started. Brendan, what's your questionable moment that you observed today? Well, I'm going to give you a twofer here because my quality and my questionable are intertwined. They are so tied up together, they could never be disentangled. My questionable moment, (laughs) both of these are about COVID. What we saw today were a number of people from the Biden administration talking, the official Biden administration, not the incoming administration, talking about COVID-19 and the effort to fight it, the effort to vaccinate 100 million Americans in 100 days, lots of things to discuss. And I wanted to kind of touch on that. So over the three shows that I covered, each of them seemed to have a different person on 
from the administration. Meet the Press had Chief of Staff Ron Klain. Fox News Sunday had CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. And State of the Union had Javier Becerra, HHS Secretary, like not the nominee to be Secretary for HHS. I was not super impressed by most of these people from the administration. I don't think they did a super great job. But they also didn't necessarily have super great follow-up questions. So take a listen. This is the questionable section. You'll hear two clips here. The first one is from Meet the Press. This is Chief of Staff Ron Klain in conversation with Chuck Todd. And Chuck Todd asks him a very specific question, and Ron Klain gives a very hand-wavy sort of answer. Take a listen. Let me ask something very specific on that. We have about a 20 million dose gap, right, of what's been distributed and what's gotten into people's arms. Where, where is where is the yeah. holdups? Is this is this on the states and how they've been distributing? I, I you know I, I look I we all have personal experiences. Um, my mother's in Florida. Yeah. Need I say more about what we've watched in Florida? What is this gap? Um, this holdup? Where is the bottleneck? Yeah, Chuck. I think it's many bottlenecks, like all complex processes. This is a very complex process that needs help on all fronts. Uh, We need more vaccine. We need more vaccinators. We need more vaccination sites. And in the Biden administration, we're tackling all three. You know, you said at the top, the fundamental difference between the Biden approach and the Trump approach is that we're going to take responsibility at the federal government. We're going to own this problem. We're going to work closely with the states. They are key partners in getting this done. But we're also going to do Uh, the work ourselves. We're going to set up these federal vaccination centers to make sure that in states that don't have enough vaccination sites, we fill fill those gaps. We're going to work closely with the manufacturers to ramp up production. One of the first orders the president signed was using his legal authority under the Defense Production Act to mandate the production of more vials that can extract more doses out of uh, more syringes that can extract more doses out of the existing vaccine vials. So we're going to use all the powers we have uh, in the White House. Mm-hmm. We're going to work with Congress to get more funding to also accelerate this so that we can improve the rate at which we're vaccinating people. You, uh, uh, when you set out the, the 100 million vaccinations in the first 100 days, uh, that was before. So, <laughs> Naomi, you and I were laughing at that as we listened. The uh, My mother's in Florida, and need I say more about what we've watched in Florida? Florida's going to Florida. Listen, yes. everyone understands it. <laughs> Need I say more in politics? But, I mean, this answer, I mean, what did you think of this answer, Naomi? Did, did you get a sense of understanding why there's this 20 million dose gap? It's everything, and it's nothing, and it's all at once. Yeah, he begins by saying, like all complex problems, this is a complex process. Reminds me of that line from West Wing, and I, I couldn't find the the line while we were on this uh listening here in this short period of time but it's like at one point i think it's josh lyman complains to toby ziegler like how many times did the president use the word complex to talk about the economy you know the people don't want to hear that they want to hear solutions and that's what ron Klain is doing here oh it's so complex it's all this it's all that just tell us the answer enough with your plans enough with your intentions you are now the chief of staff you are the administration We need clear answers, and we also need clear questions. So getting to the question side of things, take a listen to this 
exchange on Fox News Sunday where Chris Wallace is speaking with CDC director Dr. Rochelle Walensky, and she says something that just made my jaw drop to the floor, others as well, because it was kind of picked up afterwards. But yet, what is the follow-up? Dot, 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 question mark? Here it is. Then there is distribution. The new White House COVID coordinator says what you inherited from the, the Trump administration is much worse than any of you could have imagined. What is the distribution problem and how do you fix it? You know, I would say one of the biggest problems right now is I can't tell you how much vaccine we have. And if I can't tell it to you, then I can't tell it to the governors and I can't tell it to the state health officials. If they don't know how much vaccine they're getting, not just this week, but next week and the week after, they can't plan. They can't figure out how many sites to roll out. They can't figure out how many vaccinators that they need. And they can't figure out how many appointments to make for the public. So if they overshoot it, then um, we have vaccine on the shelf. If they undershoot it, we have these queues and queues of people, people whose appointments are canceled. And either way, we have challenges. So the fact that we don't know today, five days into this administration and weeks into planning, how much vaccine we have just gives you a sense with the challenges we've been left with. One sign uh, of the crunch that you're facing, at least in the short term, is the CDC put out guidelines this weekend that under quote exceptional circumstances you say that it would be okay to to mix doses okay we'll end his question there as you can see it's not at all related to the jaw-dropping answer that we just heard which i kind of curious with the wallace example because that quote or that answer by dr walensky is critical of the previous administration and maybe they don't want to go they being Fox News, the network doesn't want that line of questioning to be interrogated more. Oh, yeah, I don't know. I will say I thought overall Dr. Walensky was the best from the administration on that we heard. She was very clear, concise, direct when she was asked about the, which was has been a pretty common question this Sunday, is the goal of 100 million doses in 100 days actually ambitious enough? She basically said, look, we're going to have to do more than that. You know, she was honest about it. She didn't try to, to talk around it as some of these other folks did. So overall, she did a better job than anyone else. And that's probably why she was more forthright in saying, look, we don't even know how many vaccines we have. This is how insane it is. And I think that was a fascinating thing, but it's like, where's the follow-up? This is big news. It's like someone saying they can't find the keys to the White House and they've been looking for five days. It's like, um, probably it's time for a follow-up on that one. What the hell are you talking about? You know, it's like a general saying, well, I don't really know how many troops we have over there. Uh, what? what? What do you mean you don't know how many troops? This is insane. And uh, I just think it's ridiculous there was no follow-up there. So, however, I I want to move now to quality. In the quality camp, Dana Bash was there. And this is her first time hosting as co-host. She was talking to Javier Becerra, the HHS secretary nominee. and Former California attorney general. Yes. and And she asked what these folks didn't ask. She was very specific. And when she didn't get a clear answer, she pushed, she pushed, she pushed, she pushed. So when will anyone who wants a vaccine be able to get one? Well, that's a, that's a matter of making sure we're coordinating, 
coordinating with the states because it's not the federal government that's putting the vaccine in the arm, but we are trying to provide it. We're providing the resources and the help to make it happen. And what we want to make sure is that the locals, when they're doing this, have a plan that's clear, that's, uh, that uh, everyone understands, so there's no lines, and so that everyone knows that we're in this together. Right. But part of the problem, as you as you have laid out, is the states have been on their own. Now, uh, the, the Biden administration is saying the federal government is going to mu- have a much heavier hand. So given that, what is the timeline? What is the goal for people to get fully vaccinated? Anybody who wants it to have one? Well, it's a partnership hand. It won't be a heavy hand because we have to work with our states and local partners. Can you and give the- a timeline? Well, I, I first have to be sworn in to, to give you a timeline. But what I can tell you is this. Uh, President Biden has made it very clear to us. We give people straight shot uh, information. We don't, we don't try to hide the ball. And once we have that information, I guarantee you, we will share it. Can you give me a general timeline? Is your goal this summer? Well, let, let's put it this way. The president, before he had an opportunity to be in the, in the Oval Office when, for one day, had already committed 100 million vaccine shots in 100 days. And that's based on the information they were able to gather. Once we're in, in, the, in the house taking care of business, we'll be able to give more precision. But you got to give us a chance to figure out what's going on in the cockpit that's causing this plane to nosedive so severely. No vague answers for Dana Bash. Goodness. Well, she won't accept them. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, what I particularly appreciate is that at one point, Becerra starts nitpicking her question and says, oh, it's not a heavy hand. You know, I wouldn't say heavy hand. She's like, timeline. Is there a timeline? Like, don't nitpick, you know, the wording of my question. Can you give me a timeline? Again and again, she goes back. Timeline, timeline, timeline. Two follow-ups. Fantastic. Yeah, outstanding work. And that's what I expected from Chuck Todd on Meet the Press when Ron Klain didn't provide clear answers and he was just kind of waving things away. We need these answers. They're important questions. They deserve to be answered, and our journalists should be demanding that they be answered, no matter who is sitting in the chair, no matter how long they've been in charge. They are in charge, except Becerra, who still hasn't technically been <laughs> been confirmed and, and doesn't actually have an office yet. But still, he was put on to speak for the administration. Naomi? Tell me about your quality or questionable moments that you wanted to highlight. I just have one clip that I decided to narrow my rage on. And, well, I have more rage later. Ooh, wow. I, I was thinking, like, watch out, clip. Come on. There's more <laughs> rage later. Let's be real. But for my questionable moment, it's something I heard towards the first quarter of this week and it was a moment in which George Stephanopoulos is talking to the Congressional and the White House correspondents about the state of things and there was some certainty in the tone in which John Carl talked about the impeachment that just made me livid. Take a listen. The bottom line, George, right now, Donald Trump is not going to get convicted uh, in the Senate uh, unless there are major new revelations. Mitch McConnell hasn't ruled out of voting for conviction, but nobody who I have talked to close to McConnell thinks there's any chance that he would actually vote to convict. That said, uh, George, during this trial, unlike the last impeachment trial, you're not going to see significant numbers of Republicans coming out to actually defend Donald Trump. They will focus on the process and the constitutionality. They will argue that it is neither wise nor is it constitutional to convict somebody in 
an impeachment trial, a president who has already left office, that although Donald Trump may have committed uh, what amounts to high crimes and misdemeanors, impeachment is meant to remove a president from office, pure and simple, is what the Republicans will argue. And Donald Trump, of course, is already gone. Okay, so perhaps Republicans in the Senate are not excited to vote on impeachment, are not excited to convict. Why would you say, though, bottom line, Donald Trump is not going to be is not going to get convicted in the Senate like that level of certainty Mm -hmm. then makes Americans assume the impeachment is a waste of time. It makes people think like, well, it's already decided. What is the point of them doing it? It's all just for show. Democrats are just doing another fight just for fight's sake. And it undermines the real allegations that were brought forth in the House against Donald Trump and the reason he was impeached. And you can say Republicans are not excited to discuss this or to do this. There's very little enthusiasm to convict. What like you can express all of this without saying bottom line he's not going to be convicted. I think it's important for Americans to have a, a sense of reality in mind in terms of the likelihood of Donald Trump to be convicted. Like it is newsworthy to say, "Hey, I'm talking to all my sources and off the record, they're telling me they're not going to convict. Like, you can say that, but you can share that context without the certainty that he's not going to be convicted. You know what I mean? There's like yeah. a very fine line and the way he describes it then undermines the whole process. The whole process that he says is the issue. Well, just consider, imagine that as a headline on the New York Times. Bottom line, Trump won't be convicted. You'd be like, do you have a crystal ball? Like, how do you know what's going to happen? This is insane. It makes it seem like That's the only thing that matters in this trial is whether he's convicted or not and not what comes out, not the stance that different uh, Republicans and Democrats take on the issue, not the revelations that we learn, that the only not not the way history will ultimately, you know, write this period and these moments. But the only thing that matters is yes or no. What's the result? You know, it's kind of like. Imagine before, and we hate sometimes the sports sportsification of politics, but someone getting up there and saying, bottom line, the Chiefs aren't going to (laughs) win. It's like, what the hell? Like, how do you know that? You talk to some players and now you say that's the bottom line. And so we're not going to watch the game? The thing is, is that like using your expertise and your training and your sources Of course, John Carl knows more about this than either you and I, Brendan, here on these microphones, right? But that doesn't mean that he, the way he describes things, that you could just talk off the cuff, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And like, you know, and in the sports metaphor, you could say like, hey, so-and-so, we don't know any sports, so-and-so, you know, just got injured or they missed the last three practices and it's questionable if they're red. Like, you can give that context without than being outright, you know, a fortune teller or yeah. a psychic or whatever, right? Like you could, there's a way to finesse the tone. Well, it's interesting. You r- remind me of what we heard literally just a few weeks ago when there was a question about whether Democrats would take the seats in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I remember specifically a moment on State of the Union where Jake Tapper spoke with certainty 
that there would be a Republican Senate. Right. And how is Biden going to do anything with a with Republican, Republican Senate? Senate. Mm-hmm. And I believe somebody interrupted and was like, no, 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 you know, it's not. And he's like, oh, come on. We all know it's going to be a Republican Senate. And multiple and people Stacey said. And Abrams said, not on my exactly, watch, Exactly. Stacey Abrams was there <laughs> being interviewed. And he kind of disrespected her by not actually presenting it as if it was, was even it? a possibility. Right, yeah. And and sure enough, totally wrong. But that certainty, it, it ruins credibility, too. Right, right, exactly. Carl's credibility is really on the line here. And maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. But he's 100% wrong for speaking with the certainty of the bottom line, this is it. Brendan, what stood out to you in terms of moments in the show about politics that are worth discussing? Yeah, so the kind of area of politics that really stood out to me was related to impeachment, but it was really about responsibility. It's about whether politicians, who we frequently see on the Sunday shows or or in the headlines, whether they speak in terms of taking responsibility for action or not taking responsibility for action. So what I wanted to do was compare and contrast two Republican senators who were on the Sunday shows this week. Senator Mitt Romney, Republican senator from the state of Utah, former Republican nominee for president, and Marco Rubio, current senator from the state of Florida, need I say more? (laughs) Okay. So I wanted to start, this is about impeachment, and both of these senators were asked various questions about impeachment. Both had different answers, but as you listen and as we talk through this, I'm going to bounce back and forth between each of them on a lot of these topics. Just listen for whether the question... Or, or the answer, I should say, suggests that the politician is willing to take personal responsibility for taking action, or whether they're trying to defer that and push it off and not confront it. Here is, to begin, Marco Rubio on Fox News Sunday. You have come out strongly against the idea of holding this impeachment trial, but now it is going to happen. What do you think the rule should be about the length of the trial and whether or not to allow witnesses to be called? Well, first of all, I think the trial is stupid. Uh, I think it's counterproductive. We already have a flaming fire in this country, and it's like taking a bunch of gasoline and pouring it on top of the fire. Uh, uh, Second, um, and I look back at the time, for example, Richard Nixon, who had clearly committed crimes and wrongdoing. And uh, in hindsight, I think we would all agree that President Ford's pardon was important for the country to be able to move forward. And history held Richard Nixon quite accountable for for what he did as a result. So, Naomi, this is your first time hearing that. What... Do you feel like Rubio is taking personal responsibility for... No, it is beyond wild that Republicans are mad at Democrats for making this situation worse. That the polarization of our country is a reflection of the Democrats' action as opposed to the Republicans' inaction. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The thing that stood out to me here was... This idea by Marco Rubio that there are other ways to hold Trump accountable for his actions, like history. History will hold him accountable. Hmm. Oh, really? History? Wow. You're right. That's, that is how the justice system works, isn't it? You know, you do something wrong, and then someone writes it down, and then history holds you accountable. No, that's, that's not how the world works. That, that's insane. He talks about history holding Richard Nixon accountable without realizing that the reason why Richard Nixon did not complete his full term in office and that we actually had a president, Gerald Ford, was that senators and congresspeople 
from his own party, the Republican Party, confronted Nixon and told him that he would likely be removed from office if he did not resign. And so he resigned. They were not from the History Party. They were from the <laughs> Republican Party. Take a listen to how Mitt Romney answers on this kind of question of how holding people to account might inflame the country. This is on also on Fox News Sunday. Senator, do you support holding this impeachment trial? And what do you think the rules should be on the length of the trial and whether or not to call witnesses? Well, we're, cer we're certainly going to have a trial. Uh, I, I wish that weren't necessary, but the, the president's conduct with regards to the call, the Secretary of State Raffensperger in Georgia, uh, as well as the incitation towards the insurrection uh, that led to the attack on the Capitol, uh, calls for a trial. And, uh, uh, you know, if we're going to have uh, unity in our country, I think it's important to recognize the need for accountability, uh, for truth and justice. So in Romney's telling of it, it's not the trial that will divide and inflame the country. And it's not the Democrats who have made this trial a necessity. It's the actions of the president. Well, this is just smarter because it puts the attention on the man in question, right? Like Donald Trump. Correct. And Rubio's answer, instead of letting Donald Trump be the villain, instead of letting Donald Trump be the bad guy, instead of letting Donald Trump be the one who, quote unquote, made a mistake, he wants to put the that ire on Democrats instead. And that's not what Romney is doing. Romney's putting the attention on the person who actually messed up. Well, and exactly. And the other thing that stands out is where Rubio says that this trial will be pouring gasoline on top of the fire, Romney says it's important to recognize the need for accountability. We're not going to have unity in our country unless we have accountability. But Rubio continues, and he discusses this question of constitutionality, that procedural issue that we heard John Carl discuss. Take a listen to how Marco Rubio frames the constitutional argument why maybe there shouldn't be an impeachment at all in the Senate. I just asked Senator Romney, would you support ending this trial, if you can, on procedural grounds uh, it, that it's unconstitutional to try a, a president who's left office without ever getting to the issue of the guilt or innocence of Donald Trump? Yeah, the first chance I get to vote to end this trial, I'll do it because I think it's really bad for America. If you want to hold people accountable, there's other ways to do it, particularly for presidents including, as I said, the perspective of history, and, and even now as people are learning more about all this. But it's really bad. When you talk about situations like this, this is, this is not a criminal justice trial. This is a political process. Man, Rubio is really leaning on history books to be the one that determines the, the accountability and consequences for Donald Trump. But did you hear his really astute argument about the constitutionality of this? No, you didn't, because he just said nakedly that any chance he has to stop this trial from happening, he's going to stop it from happening. Because he doesn't want to have to do it. That's the thing. Rubio doesn't want to hold Trump accountable. He wants, you know, many of these other ways to do it, like uh, the perspective of history. The perspective of history will hold him accountable. Here's Romney on the constitutionality question. This is from State of the Union. Many of your colleagues, I'm sure you've heard, argue that it's not constitutional to convict a president who is no longer in office. Do you agree with that? 
Well, I've read a number of law review uh, articles, and I think if you put aside the uh, the partisan uh, uh, columns, if you will, that are written in various publications, and look at those uh, that are written by uh, by academics, you'll find that the preponderance of the legal opinion uh, is that a uh, impeachment trial after someone has left office is constitutional. I believe that's the case. I'll of course hear what the lawyers have to say uh, for each side, uh, but I think uh, it, it's pretty uh, pretty clear that the effort is constitutional. So this stood out to me, and I really, I wish we heard this more on a lot of different issues on the Sunday shows from politicians, and also, frankly, from journalists, who cited not partisan columns, but looked at academic articles from nonpartisan experts and said, if you look at this and you review the literature on it, not what, you know, David Brooks wrote in the New York Times or whatever— you will see. They love citing yes, editorials. You will see that there's there's a pretty clear answer on this. People, we don't have to pretend like it's just a bunch of partisans arguing. There's a way to get to get to the truth. So I really appreciated that from Romney here. And frankly, it's something that we haven't heard. You know, Dana Bash isn't citing that in her question, is she? It's Romney who brings these academic journal articles to the fore. Well, it's also very convenient for Romney to say, hey, guys, fellow Republicans, not me. I read it somewhere and it's very legit. It's helpful for him, too. Yeah, absolutely. So the final question here of how much responsibility these senators are going to take for this process is related to the other thing that this impeachment trial might do, which is not only remove someone from office, but possibly barring them from ever holding federal office again. Take a listen to how Rubio talks about why he doesn't think the Senate should be involved in that sort of decision. What about the argument that it would be useful from the point of view of, of, of people who think that what the president did was wrong to ban him from seeking public office again, which would be one of the results of holding this trial? I think that's an arrogant statement for anyone to make. Voters get to decide that. We, who are we to tell voters who they can vote for in the future? Okay. <laughs> I, I talked with uh, Senator Romney about... Even Chris Wallace was stunned by that answer. I mean, Chris Wallace doesn't want to see President Trump back in the White House. He's like, please, God, <laughs> let's not repeat this. I could see where the interviewer, someone like Chris Wallace, might expect a more nuanced answer than simply saying, it's not our job in the Senate to do what it's our job to do in this instance, right? Like, literally, the Senate is given those powers. And for Rubio to just say it's arrogant of us to use these powers is kind of crazy, you know? It would be like them saying it's it's arrogant for us to, to vote on laws, you know? That's, we're a democracy. It's for the people to decide. So where Marco Rubio thinks it's arrogant for him to, or any senators, to exercise the powers that the Senate is given within the Constitution, here's Mitt Romney's take on what President Trump did and the responsibility of others who kind of cheered him on. And, and I hope people step back and say, where was it that the president got the idea that the election was fraudulently delivered? Uh, did his Justice Department tell him that? No. As a matter of fact, they told him just the opposite. Did the intelligence community tell him that? No, actually, they said just the opposite. So where did he hear this idea that, for instance, 5,000 dead people in Georgia voted? Did that come from the Georgia officials? No. 
They said only two people, upon a complete review of all the voters, only two people were dead that voted, and those are being investigated. So basically, he either made this up out of midair, or um, you know, perhaps someone in their basement uh, tweeted something out and he picked it up from there. But there, there is no evidence that he was ever able to show, and that's why 60 courts that looked at it simply uh, laughed about a court. And, and the reality is this is something that was made up and, uh, and it's had enormous damage. And those that participated in spreading that, I think, will recognize that they now have a responsibility to set the record straight and to say, in fact, we never did see hard evidence of a widespread fraud of the nature that would reverse the election. That is something I think that's essential today. That's from State of the Union. The impeachment is looking back, right? The impeachment, for the most part, says this is what Donald Trump did. This is why there needs to be consequences or whatever. And the importance of the impeachment could potentially limit what President Trump is can or cannot do in the future, right? Yes. And what Romney here is doing is also expanding that look to also say, how did this dangerous rhetoric come in? And like, I don't know, I guess the subtext that I'm hearing is, how do we prevent this type of disinformation, these types of lies, to getting into the hands of decision makers to people in authority in the future, right? Like, you kind of have to understand that to then understand what is what can happen when people with lots of power get very bad information. And then spread that information. Right. As as Romney's saying here, they need, they're need they still in power, a lot of these people, and they need to take responsibility for that. And now that they know that this is wrong, they need to step out and say, hey, I was wrong about this, and here's the reality. To reverse the thinking of so many voters, Trump voters, that think that Biden was not legitimately elected president. I, I just want to point out, as someone who appreciates rhetoric and good writing and speaking, that this is one of the most eloquently phrased answers I've heard on the Sunday shows ever. I mean, this is almost like a like a speech, you know, where, you know, the call and response, you know, where did he get this idea? Did he get it from this place? No. As a matter of fact, they told him the opposite. Did he get it from that place? No, they told him the opposite. Did they get it? From, you know, it's really, really well structured. And frankly, one of the strongest arguments for Trump's guilt here that I've heard from anybody. So overall, I think this provides a really interesting case study in how two senators from the same party can approach this issue and either choose to take responsibility for their role in acting to hold people accountable, or instead try to, by every means possible, push that responsibility back on the voters, back on history, back on whatever the hell they can do to get out of actually doing what their duty is here. So, Naomi, did you have anything from journalism that you wanted to point out? Let's move on to journalism now. What stood out to you in the shows you covered? So my moment in journalism that I had to, had to, had to discuss was the interview on Face the Nation with Dr. Deborah Burks, who until recently was the White House coronavirus coordinator on, you know, in, in conjunction with Vice President Pence. On the task force. On the task force, correct. And this was just an extraordinary interview. I think on Face the Nation, it was probably easily at least 30 minutes. It's a full 90 minutes wow. long. That never happens unless it's like the president is on the exactly. show. Exactly. It's huge. The full interview is on their website and also on the new CBS Facing Forward podcast. I plan on definitely listening to it 
again in, in its entirety to catch the other parts. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. It was it was so fascinating. And I've seen some people kind of give Dr. Burks some backlash about why is she doing this now? And to that, I say anyone who's saying that didn't watch the full interview and they're probably just looking at clips online. This interview was powerful for so many different ways, but I think it's the interview that I have wanted to hear in so many other respects in terms of people who left the EPA, people who felt pushed out of the State Department, people who felt like in so many different parts of our federal government who were trying to do good work under an administration they didn't agree with and then ultimately often left. Dr. Bursch is someone who didn't leave and tried to keep doing the work. And now she's speaking out and speaking out pretty quickly. She's not doing a freaking John Bolton, write a book and then sell a book and then get scheduled and booked onto all these shows to promote her book and talk about how crazy that administration is. She's not doing that. After making tons of money. Making tons of money and sitting on like bombshells about how dysfunctional the White House was. For months and months. For months months. when like really dangerous situations were happening. Like she's not doing that. She's literally like within a week of her retirement from the federal government and she's dropping some bombshells, right? And she's doing it in a very like professional methodical way because she's like a scientist she's someone who like she's she's not brash and so i guess that's like my my takeaway overall from from the interview super powerful a few things that stand out to me there were just a few moments that i wanted to discuss today and the first moment i want to share with you was something that happened in the first 10 minutes or so that dr burks describes and It kind of goes from her original extreme hesitance to taking this position within the White House to then describing how her own reputation is on the line. I had no interest in going into a political space. I'm not a political person. I'm a civil servant. It never occurred to me to go into the White House until I could see that we were missing pieces that I thought were very important in the response. And so after many weeks of saying no, 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 The president announced the new task force with the vice president in the lead. Um, They said this would be very technical and that I would have a very technical position. And because I thought that I could be helpful, which is the only reason I go and do anything, if I think I have something to add, I feel like it's my obligation to the American public to go in and do that. That's what a civil servant is supposed to do. You were a colonel in the Army? Yes. An immunologist, you were appointed by President Obama to work on AIDS relief, as you mentioned, at the State Department. Yet your name in the history books is going to be associated with President Donald Trump. How does that sit with you? Well, you know, this is what worries me. If we start looking at technical civil servants as belonging to a political party, we will lose the ability for highly qualified civil servants to come and help. If we start saying, if you come in and do this, you are then going to be part of the political apparatus, that is going to be very dangerous for this country. Wow, it really resonates. It makes me think of judges, right? The idea of judges being appointed and reminds me of what... Although in many places they're elected and that's a joke, but yeah. But it reminds me of, you know, John Roberts being frustrated and saying, no, there are no Obama judges or Trump judges. They are just judges. And a lot of people 
you know, thought that was crazy because there's a whole organization, the Federalist Society, that has been dedicated to getting, you know, ideologically perfect in their mind judges, you know, aligned with them onto the federal bench. But yeah, we, we don't want to see scientists doing that same thing. Yeah, I mean, we, we have seen scientists do that, right? In the CDC, in the EPA, like really specialized, extremely well-trained civil servants felt uncomfortable in this administration and and left. Those are people who often are never coming back. And those are people or, or new people entering the field who have zero desire to work for the federal government now, right? You know, immediately before this clip started, there's kind of a longer discussion on Dr. Burks's work and how extensive it is. Like, she was someone who has worked on AIDS and TB across the globe for, for decades, right? And so in this interview, you can hear throughout multiple times where she seemed so frustrated with the administration. But it seems to me as she has real peace in that she did the best she could. And that's not what you have when someone decides to not work for the federal government to begin with, right? Like you can't measure the people who don't even bother who now. Who don't show up, yeah. To, to work for the federal government because of this chaos. And so Dr. Burks is kind of leaving, is retiring from the CDC after decades of work in a very, like, compromise isn't the right word, but, you know, in, in a very precarious place in terms of her reputation. But she did a lot of great work for the federal government. And what she's saying here is there's going to be people who don't even, who, who don't sign up. To begin with. Yeah, it definitely could be a disincentive for people to to get involved or to, you know, as she said, she turned it down several times. It's a disincentive for people to, to hold their hand up and say, yeah, yeah, I want to be a part of that. Absolutely. The next moment that I wanted to share with you, Brendan, is when Dr. Burks describes if and how President Trump understood the seriousness of COVID and specifically talking about how she would try to counter unproductive false information. Do you think President Trump appreciated the gravity of the health crisis you were describing? I think the president appreciated the gravity in March. Um, It took a while after I arrived in the White House to remove all of the ancillary data that was coming in. I mean, there was parallel data streams (laughs) coming into the White House that were not transparently utilized. And I needed to stop that. Where people You mean outside were advisors? Outside advisors coming to inside advisors. And to this day, I mean, until the day I left, I am I'm convinced there were parallel data streams because I... Disinformation. I saw the president presenting graphs that I never made. So I know that someone or someone out there or someone inside was creating a parallel set of data and graphics that were shown to the president. I know what I sent up, and I know that what was in his hands was different from that. You can't do that. You have to use the entire database. To this day, I don't know. I know now watching some of the tapes that certainly Scott Atlas brought in parallel data streams. I I mean, I remember watching things. I mean, that stands out the most in my mind is the Jonathan Swan interview. Yeah, that was on my mind, too. Yeah, where where Trump just kept saying, look at this graph, look at this graph. And of course, we got all those gifts of Jonathan Swan's face like, what? What is this? And it seems like 
she was doing the same thing on the inside. Like, right. what, what, huh? what, what is this? What is this graphic? I mean, it just goes to show, like, I feel like we haven't heard too many specific instances like this of how poorly run the White House was and how poorly run the White House was on a national, no, global crisis that was killing people, thousands of people every day, right? Like, the gravity of of what that dysfunction led to is the part that is like infuriating to me is realizing like they never got their act together. Never. Because Scott Atlas wasn't, didn't really have a role until last fall. And then the last clip I wanted to share was kind of what Dr. Burks was willing to do to counter all these false messages and the strategic alliances she made with other public health professionals that could help get the right message out. In this clip, you'll hear Dr. Burks explain why she went on the road and started talking to the governors when she couldn't get to President Trump. Um, It is also why I went out on the road, because I wasn't censored on the road. You felt the White House was censoring you? Well, if you've noticed, (laughs) I was not able to do national press. Um, The other thing that was very important to me is I was not going to go outside of the chain of command. And so if our White House comms group did not put me out, I didn't ask to go out. I, because there was so much leaking and so many parallel stories being leaked to the press that did not have grounding in truth that I didn't want to ever be part of that slippery slope. I know people started it with good intentions of trying to inform the American people, but then it became a way that they could silence those who didn't agree with them. Do you think the administration was suppressing vital information to win the election? I don't know what their motivation was. I know that I was so frustrated that I realized that the only way, if I could not get a voice internally, that I could get a voice out at the state level because I could see the governors on the governor's call weekly, and I could see how deeply they were concerned about every one of their citizens. Most of them were not in the middle of an election campaign. I want to make it clear, this was just not Debbie Burks. There was a coalition of of four of us at the beginning, from Steve Hahn to Bob Redfield to myself to Tony Fauci. We would make sure that we could get the information out to the public in one way or the other. It's why I sent the information to all of them every morning, Mm -hmm. because I never knew who would have the ability to do press. Wow. This is really quite a revelation of what it was like on the inside and how desperately people like Dr. Burks were trying to to make an impact, to get the truth out there. And even when they couldn't talk to the public, it sounds like she was like, well, who can I talk to? Oh, the governors. They seem interested. That's where I'm going. Yeah. And throughout this interview, you you hear Dr. Burks continuously explain her strategy or her thinking or her approach. And there were instances in which Margaret Brennan was, you know, why did you have to go, like, you're head of the task force. Why did you have to kind of be sneaky about it? And she's just like, I have to get the message out there in whatever way I can. And if that means I'm talking to governors on the road, then that that's what I have to do. Or, you know, I think there was at one point, she's like, well, what does it mean if the president 
isn't wearing a mask and that's like the biggest priority and it's just like you get the message some other way like it was so clear that there were just things that were not going to happen prior messaging priorities that were not going to happen and dr burks felt like it was her job to find alternatives and maybe they won't be as good and they wouldn't be as effective necessarily as like the red alert coming from the white house like that probably would have been ideal, but it didn't mean that there wasn't a role she had to help, right? Well, yeah, and the question I have is to everybody who's like, well, why didn't she just resign? It's like, okay, so what if those four people she just described who were committed to getting the truth out there had resigned? Then Atlas would be in charge, right? Scott Atlas would be in charge. And how is that better? It makes no sense. Right, and she mentions Redfield just in passing here, but... Redfield was the head of the CDC and people have been hammering for his resignation and saying the CDC has been pretty much a joke during this whole crisis with COVID. But it's not like he's probably twiddling his thumb frantic, not wa- not wanting to do something like he's doing things behind the back, like in the background as his name is just like being dragged through the mud. And there's a couple things that stand out to me. Let me back up. As we mentioned before, Margaret Brennan is someone who likes competence. She likes shit getting done, right? She likes professionals. And that's especially true, you know, in in the private sector. But in the federal government, it's anything less than pure competence and using the American people's American public's money well is... Unacceptable. Outrageous. Right? And so I think what comes across to me is that Margaret Brennan sees Dr. Burks as someone who made a lot of mistakes, but tried her freaking hardest in a really insane situation when we all needed her to. Right? And so I think there's a level of desperation from Margaret Brennan saying, like, why couldn't more be done? Or you knew what the crisis was. Like, why couldn't you shout it from the rooftops or whatever? But at the same time, there's this recognition of this was an impossible situation. Thank you for describing it to us. Thank you for all you've done. I mean, she never really says thank you. But it's implied that, like, we see the effort. And thank you for just being here to share it with us. And anyone who doesn't see that, I think is missing the bigger point. And that's the thing that I feel like is very, very different than everyone else who left the White House in, you know, flames, then sold a book, then started like going on the shows and promoting their book. Like John Bolton is just like one of like a dozen people who did that, right? And that's not what Dr. Burks is doing here. And the other thing that Dr. Burks describes here is that she took meticulous notes and after every meeting took meticulous notes, did a daily report every single day and shared it with key people, including the people she describes here. And that that drove a lot of the messaging that that they could do that they would do. But she she talks about how she knows that this COVID crisis is going to be studied and it's going to be analyzed. And she's like, maybe it won't. And she says, maybe it won't happen in my lifetime, but it will. And I know that the work will speak for itself. And I don't know anyone else who worked in the Trump administration who could make that claim. Well, actually, it reminds me of Comey, who made those meticulous notes. Yeah, no, but Comey is not in the same freaking... Don't no, even... No, 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 I'm just saying... I'm Comey saying doesn't note. even belong in, like, no, the no. same breath as Dr. Burke. I'm saying the note-related thing, where it's, like, taking meticulous notes... I know. ...about what's going on. He also sold a book that was very convenient for him. But. Yes. Yeah, quite a story here, and, and I just think about... 
what she had to face every day, right? You really get a sense, and just from the few clips you shared with me, of the weight of of the difficulty that she had to navigate and the decisions she had to make and decide what her role could be. How could she be constructive in this place where lives are on the line, hundreds of thousands of people are dying? This is a crisis, and yet it's so dysfunctional and, and so disturbing. You're in the center of it, and what do you do, you know? I definitely would encourage anybody who is super critical of a clip or two that they have seen to, as you said, watch the whole thing, but also reflect on what if that was your day every day for a year? Yeah. And there was just, there was a lot of things that also even changed my perspective of the last year and Trump's role or like one small example is there, Margaret Brennan asks what it was like for Republican governors to listen to Dr. Burks, want to keep their citizens safe, but then to do that requires policies that goes against President Trump, head of their own party. Right. right? And Dr. Burks said, essentially, it wasn't so much President Trump that was hard to fight, but their Republican legislatures at the state level, which is actually... That the governors were, were, were concerned about were that. Were concerned about, like, how do I convince my Republican legislature that we need to do masks or, or that we need to, you know, close down X amount of our economy. Like, and I had it like that wasn't even on my mind. You know what I mean? And so there's a lot of different perspective and angles to kind of analyze the chaos of the last year and, and really all the death, the unnecessary death of the last year. And I think it's going to be civil servants like Dr. Burks and people who are willing to really analyze this administration and people who are not waiting for history books like freaking Senator Rubio to to have that understanding. Like, goodness, I hope we're like prioritizing that now. Absolutely. Brendan, what's your moment in journalism that you wanted to share? This is very, very small, very small, going to be very quick. It's just a moment from Meet the Press where there was a discussion of the filibuster in the Senate. And I got a real sense that, first of all, because I've been reading and trying to learn as much as I can about the filibuster, the history of the filibuster, where it comes from, uh, what it means for the Senate. And so I felt, as someone who has some understanding of what the filibuster is, that this was a really interesting exchange. And then I stepped back and I thought to myself, hmm, but was it really? And this is Chuck Todd speaking with... Dick Durbin, he is a senator, Democratic senator from the state of Illinois. He is also the Democratic whip in the Senate. Take a listen to what I'm talking about. Um, There's a lot of groups. I want to get to the filibuster now. There's a lot of uh, progressive groups that have no patience on this filibuster debate. And I know you guys are going to get inundated with some some ads that are already uh, on social media. Here's one we're putting up. The time has come uh, here. It looks like a movie trailer. And they quote Barack Obama saying Jim Crow relic. Uh, uh, AOC calling it a chair's tool of segregationists and um, former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid saying it's outlived its usefulness. Do you have a point in time? Where are you on this filibuster question? And is there a point where you're going to say, you know what, I've tried long enough? Well, I think it gets down to the bottom line here. The American people want us to take action, action on this pandemic, action on this economy, and on a a host of other issues. And if this filibuster has now become so common in the Senate that we can't act, that we just sit there helpless, shame on us. Of course we should consider a change in the rule under those circumstances. But let's see. Let's see if we can initiate a real bipartisan dialogue Mm -hmm. and get something done. That's the bottom line. Did you notice uh, Durbin said there, that's the bottom line at the end? Yeah, there's a lot of bottom lines, we realized. So 
as someone who's, like I said, looked at the filibuster and the history of it a bit, I thought this was a very interesting conversation. I'm, I'm interested and engaged. There's a new book out called Kill Switch by somebody who worked for Harry Reid for many years in the Senate as, you know, when he was Senate Majority Leader, talking about what the filibuster means and the history of it going back, you know, to the to the start of the Republic when it did not exist. But the reason I wanted to focus on the journalism side of this is that this is this is basically it. This is how Chuck Todd introduces this topic. And the filibuster is a pretty arcane subject about the procedures of one of the two houses of Congress of one of the three branches of federal government that we have. And to just assume that the audience understands what the hell we're talking about here is is quite the insane assumption because and yet the topic is so important it's so critically important to anything getting done in the senate so briefly here's a brief description of what the filibuster is it's very simple we think of the senate as being a body where the majority rules you need 50 votes or 51 votes to pass something. You need 50 and then you could have the the vice president break the tie and then suddenly something passes. That's how it works for all the legislation out there. You need more when you're impeaching a president. But that's about it. The filibuster, however, says, no, 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 you actually need 60 votes to win. And the the vice president has no role anymore at all. Vice president role disappears. Right. You need two thirds, which is 60 votes. Right. If, if there's fewer senators, it would, it would, the number would change. And that's, of course, not in the Constitution. It's just a rule that was kind of put in there. And it's a rule that you need 60 votes to shut down debate. That's basically the way they do it. They say you need 60 votes to shut down debate and actually go to that to a vote. So essentially, you need the 60 votes to win anything. That's not how the Constitution was built. And it's not at all something that needs to be the case. And yet what it does is it provides all this power to whoever happens to be in the minority, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans. Used to be that you had to actually speak as a senator and actually provide debate that they would have to then vote to shut down. And that's where you get the the famous movie, um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington was kind of based on that. There's, There's a famous scene in there where there's a lot of talking going on to kind of delay a vote. But ultimately, someone can't speak forever and you could just wait them out and then as a senator who wants to get something passed, you could go and vote and all you need is, is the 50 or 51. So the filibuster is extremely important. It's basically the difference in a world where we have 50 Republicans and 50 senator, uh, Democrats. It's the difference between things actually getting passed or not getting passed. Legislation, because it has to go through both the House and the Senate, this, this one rule ends up being a bottleneck for the federal government passing anything. So it's extremely important And it really deserves a lot more discussion. And I really hope, or explanation, I should say, because there is a lot of discussion going on, but we need explanation from these shows for people to understand what it is and also how it's evolved. Because a lot of people might think it is what it used to be. It is what it was in the movies or or in one episode of West Wing where you really do have to just talk the whole time. And that's really not, not the case anymore. So that's my journalism point. I do appreciate this discussion. I think they're really important questions, but... We really need to have moments where our Sunday shows stop and talk about the health of 
the Senate itself, the health of this institution. You know, we spend so much time talking about the presidency and the institution of the presidency, but we need to talk about these other institutions, the Senate, the House, the Supreme Court, with the same level of focus and energy and drive and reflection. So your point is that this is important, but Chuck Todd misses the mark to explain it for his audience. Absolutely. Yep. And the other shows as well, because there are questions all across these shows all the time, and rarely do they take a moment to educate the audience on what the hell we're talking about. Yeah, and I think that goes to the heart of a serious issue, which is oftentimes the Sunday shows are designed, planned, executed for a Washington audience, whether that's politicians themselves, their staffers, or people in the Beltway who understand how all this works, right? Or other journalists. Or other journalists, right. And maybe that's true, and maybe that is the case. But I think even in that space, you could say, listen, you know, 40% of people in Nebraska don't know what the filibuster is and don't understand why you can't pass this thing that is important to them. Yeah. Why are you fighting for it? Right. Right. Like you can still frame it and then like a very explain where you're going to keep the filibuster or or you want to get rid of it. But contextualize it in a way for an ought like that brings the average American into that conversation. And sometimes when they talk about these arcane rules, the average American is nowhere in that conversation. And so they don't want to listen to it, right? Like that's the other side of it. You don't understand the topic and it it feels like it doesn't impact you or it's not about you. And so people check out and that's why people don't like really like political journalism. I mean, it makes tons of sense. And so it's incumbent on both the policymaker and the journalist to bring them in. Exactly. And there are so many questions out there like this, where it's like someone who's just an average voter living in Nebraska might be like, why the hell is this still a problem? Yeah, the people, you know? I mean, and that's a whole other thing that like, if we wanted to have a whole debate on the filibuster, but like most Americans don't know what the filibuster is. They don't care about the filibuster, but they are really frustrated that Congress can't do anything. So, right. gee, maybe you should look at the filibuster. But anyway, that's like a whole other topic that will. All right, Naomi. We're supposed to not have so much rage today. <laughs> you were supposed to save it all for that one. No, just kidding. I have moment. it in my next segment too. Oh, so. okay. So what's that? Tell me about the thing in politics that stuck out to you, Naomi. Yeah. So the thing in politics that made me rage that I've been thinking about is the interview on this week with. Senator Rand Paul. I mean, I don't know why I'm really surprised. Rand Paul likes being Rand Paul and likes being contrarian for a lot of things. But I thought he would want a career post-Trump and would try to create space in the Republican Party after Trump. But the space he wants is the space Donald Trump created, essentially. And so in this interview with George Stephanopoulos, it kind of exploded with a simple question of of whether or not Rand Paul believes it was a fair election. And from, I mean, truly, the interview just kind of exploded. What stood out to me is that while President Trump is no longer in office, his lies are still thriving in the mouth of Senator Rand Paul. Take a listen to this moment on This Week. The De- Department of Justice, led by William Barr, said there's no widespread evidence of fraud. Can't you just say the words, this yeah. election was well, not what stolen? What I would suggest is, what I would suggest is that if we want greater confidence in our elections, and 75% of Republicans agree with me, is that we do need to look at inte- election integrity, and we do need to see if we can uh, restore confidence in the elections. 
Well, 75% of Republicans agree with you because they were fed a big lie by President Trump and his supporters who say the election was stolen. Why can't you say well, I think where President you make, Biden I think, won a I think legitimate you make a mistake in, uh, Hey, George, 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 where you make a mistake is that people coming from the liberal side like you, you immediately say everything's a lie instead of saying there are two sides to everything. Historically, what would happen is if I said that I thought there was fraud, you would interview someone else who said there wasn't. But now you insert yourself in the middle and say the absolute well, fact is that everything I'm saying is a lie. Well, because, but I would Senator, I said what the president the said was a lie because to. he said, hold we're on a second. To. He said the election was stolen. This election was not stolen. This the results were certified in every you're single saying, state was, you're saying, after counts you're saying, and recounts. You're saying that absolutely it was, you're saying there was no fraud in it. It's all been investigated. That's just not true. So it's not what I said, sir. I said the Department of Justice found no evidence. Wow, George really got worked up there. Yeah, George was pissed. This whole interview, he just wanted to, like, I think, go through the camera, go through the television, and just, like, slap Rand Paul. These are literally the messaging from President Trump's campaign, that there were irregularities, that there were issues, that Secretary of State's changed laws. When George brings up that dozens and dozens and dozens of states threw out these claims in court and that there was no bearing. Rand Paul just says there was no investigation. Like, because they were thrown out, there was no investigation. As opposed to they were thrown out because they were without There was bearing. no evidence. Right. Like, he wants investigations for things that there's no evidence on. Huh? Huh? <sighs> Makes... It, it's just, like, truly baffling. Well, and and... The other thing that stands out to me here is this rhetorical technique Paul uses, which we see again and again and again, when somebody doesn't want to confront the question, they just say, well, here's the problem in your question, George. And they go after they go after the question, they go after the interviewer, rather than actually answering the freaking question. Oh, no. He goes, let, let me show you the next clip where Rand Paul goes after the media a bit more. There's there is no widespread evidence of election fraud that overturned the results. That was stated as well by the Department of Justice, led by President Trump's Attorney General. In Wisconsin, there were counts and recounts. Well, actually, was the never studied. That, even that's certified. not true. Even that's not true. Even William that's Barr not said true. That Barr said that. But there was yes, he said that. Yes, that was a pronouncement. There has been no examination, thorough examination of all the states to see what problems we had and see if they could fix them. Now, let me say to be clear, I vote to certify the state electors because I think it would be wrong for Congress to overturn that. But at the same time, I'm not willing just to sit here and say, oh, everybody on the Republican side is a liar and there is no fraud. No, there were lots of problems and there were secretaries of state who illegally changed the law and that needs to be fixed and I'm going to work hard to fix it and I won't be cowed by people saying, oh, you're a liar. That's the problem with the media today is they say all Republicans are liars and everything we say is a lie. There are two sides to every story. Interview somebody on the other side, but don't insert yourself into the story to say we're all liars because we there, there's some fraud there, in the there, election there are not, there are not two there are not two sides of the story this has been looked at in every single state the election oh, sure there are. certified there in are every two sides to every state. story george you're forgetting who you are you're forgetting who you are as a journalist if you think there's only one side you're inserting yourself into the story to say i'm a liar because i want to look at election fraud and i want to look at secretaries of state who illegally change the voter laws without the permission of their state legislatures that is incontrovertible it happened and you can't just sweep that under the rug and say oh nothing to see here and everybody's a liar and you're a fool if you bring this up 
You're inserting yourself into the story. A journalist I'm, would hear both sides, and there are two sides of this story. I'm, sta I'm standing by facts. There are not two sides to facts. I did not say there, that this was a perfect election. I said it was. the results were certified. I said it was not stolen. It is You're a lie to say You're saying people are liars. Kentucky, this is your junior senator. What? Wow. I've seen a lot of talk about the advisability of inviting on Senator Paul and giving voice to those who say that the election was stolen, right? And I guess I have a question for you, Naomi, who watched the entire interview. Does Paul say the words, this election was stolen or this election was not stolen? Does he actually address that, that word, stolen? No, uh, he never says it was stolen, but he says that there was election fraud. And so he's never disputing the lies that President Trump claimed. What do you say to those who criticize this week for inviting on Rand Paul for this discussion today? Um, I didn't realize Rand Paul was as crazy as Senator Hawley and Senator Cruz. So I don't think... On I, this issue. On this issue, yeah. I thought he was politically ambitious and was trying to toe the line, I didn't realize he'd be so rabid in his defense of President Trump's lies. And so maybe other people saw that coming. I didn't personally. And so I I thought he was just, again, I thought he was going to try to find a lane for, for himself in the post-Trump world. And what I am realizing is he's like, no, he's like throwing down his flag in the path of President Trump that Cruz and Hawley are on. And which is dumb, like no one, no one with long term vision wants to be on there. I, I don't understand why Rand Paul is doing this. So you would just say, you know, the shows might not have known either that he was. No, I don't. I, I, I don't know. Listen, I just got back to work. I have no idea. I'm not following <laughs> Twitter as much as I usually do. And so maybe this was something that this week and other people knew was going to be coming. I'm saying I didn't realize how much Rand Paul was going to defend President Trump's lies. But I think George does an effective job in signposting to the viewer that what he is saying is not true. There is no evidence that there are multiple points that have been debunked on this, including, again, dozens and dozens of courts, the Supreme Court, even President Trump's own... Department of Justice, right? And so, yes, the, like just because you're a senator and you're on my Sunday morning show doesn't mean what you're saying is valid and true. And I think George does a good job in doing that. Now, if they were to ever have Rand Paul again on, I, I think I'd feel differently. Yeah, yeah, it does remind me of some of those moments we've seen on other shows where where the host just you know a line is crossed in the sand and the right. host says that's it. Right. And I, I think the evidence that the the show didn't expect this is that George, this is not George's regular demeanor, people. Like, if you watch the Sunday shows, he is cool as a cucumber almost all the time, particularly in the last few years where he's been... Too uh, cool. Yeah, way too cool. He was not here. And I do not think that he walked into this interview saying, I'm going to roast Rand Paul today. Right. That is not George's MO. He does not do that. So I don't think they were expecting this either, frankly. And I think that these are important statements for a host to make. I mean, it might be nice to have them made not in an interview where you're 
you have someone spewing misinformation, but maybe as an aside, but for a host to say there aren't two sides to the issue, there is the truth. I think it's important that it's that said is in the important interview. to be said. I don't think he should have done it in a side. I think no. It's I'm a- saying if there wasn't an interview like this and he just had an aside. Oh right, right, right. No, right. I, I, I think it's important that George did it in this way, and, and because it's also a signal to every other senator who thinks or, or politician who thinks that they can go on the show and just like treat journalists like crap and say that they don't know how to their do their job, yeah, and spew lies, right? Like you got to call it out when it happens. All of this reminds me of a tweet I saw literally today from Perry Bacon Jr., who works for Five Thirty Eight, and he said. Journalists have to get clearer about the values of our profession and clearly articulate them. For example, journalists are evidence-based, not just repeating two sides or seven sides and treating them as equally valid. Evidence-based is an important idea. And that's exactly what we heard from George today, right? It's not about, and Rand Paul needs to learn this, right? It's not just about presenting all the sides. Yeah, if your side sucks, no one has to listen to you. Well, if you're wrong, yes. Well, that too. And also, if you're <laughs> fascist, we don't have to listen to you. Yeah. There's a lot of people I don't listen to. It's great. I mean, that's not very true to the polylog ethos. But if people are lying to you, shut it down. All right, Naomi. That takes us to show ratings. How would you rate your shows today? I mean, Face the Nation's a nine for sure. Excellent. Excellent. Oh, I... Almost thought for a second Gottlieb wasn't on, but he just didn't make it to the broadcast. He was interviewed, and it's on the website. So I feel like I need to listen to it just because I can't not hear Gottlieb every week. And then on this week, I would say it was a six, um, mainly because the Roman Christie show was another waste of time. And this interview with Rand Paul was really frustrating. Klobuchar was pretty decent, but... Well, know, but George gets credit for that one. It's not a negative that, no, it's that not, George did a good job in this interview. I just don't know if it's a worth everyone's time to listen to or watch the whole episode. It's news that will disappear in three days, I guess is what I'm saying. So I'd say for the three shows I looked at, Fox News Sunday at the bottom, number four, there were lots of things I was frustrated by in this show. I didn't have a chance to talk about them all based on our new format, but just know that there were lots of things I was frustrated by. But I have to give it more than a three because I did find those interviews with Rubio and Romney enlightening. Meet the Press, I gave a five. I was also kind of frustrated by that show a bit today. I don't think it was the best job. I don't think they were, you know, the best follow-ups that we saw. And I don't think that Meet the Press or really any of the shows properly noted the gravity of an incoming administration Hardly anyone mentioned the actual inaugural address, which I think people will look back on as being a very important watermark for a new presidency. I just don't think there was enough on that. Now, Meet the Press does get some credit for having their special episode be about Biden and this incoming president. So I do want to give them credit for for doing that in in December. And then finally, State of the Union, I will give an eight because I think Dana Bash did a great job with her follow-ups. And overall, there was a pretty good good episode there. And today for the Dialogue Challenge, Naomi, is there anything that comes to mind? Uh, Lots of themes of today's episode. Accountability, taking responsibility for action. How about this? I'm trying to think of Dr. Burks, right? And how it's very easy to judge her based on a six-second clip you see, or a 30-second clip you see. But to put yourself in the shoes of someone who had to do that every day and try to understand how 
how you might act and how you might make meaningful contributions. I don't know. How, how is there a dialogue on that? What would you say? Who's somebody you empathize with that you don't always totally agree with? Mm, yeah. Yeah. And for me, I think I give the empathy to people who, I mean, there's lots of reasons to give empathy to people, but it's easier to empathize with people who are taking the courage to take responsibility for their actions. And to talk about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Rather than pushing that responsibility onto history. Absolutely. Well, if you have any thoughts on empathy or accountability or history or anything we talked about, really, you can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Naomi underscore. You can tweet at me at bsteidel and you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone. And we will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.